I have my tongue, 500 languages I would sing to you. This is Monica Jasmine Caro. I'm a proud Gunai Kurnai, Gunishmara, and Mukjai Wait woman. I'm a spoken word poet, actor, and musician, and you are listening to 3CR Community Radio. And I love community radio because it is about representation and accessibility for all peoples of all walks of life. And I must have a home somewhere I belong. Welcome to Commons Conversations, a series of interviews with campaigners sharing their experience and insights into activism, radical history and more. The program is broadcast by Community Radio 3CR and produced by the Common Social Change Library, a website containing over 1,000 resources for campaigners, which can be accessed for free at commonslibrary.org. My name is Ian McIntyre, and in today's program, I chat with Irish activist and researcher Lawrence Cox about the nature of learning in movements for social change. Alongside using reflection, learning and sharing to improve a range of practical skills, Lawrence discusses how various projects and organisations are working to help activists address broader dilemmas to do with strategy and movement building. In undertaking this work, he and others are helping to bring activists together to encourage cross-pollination and form approaches to those common but eternal questions such as how can people-powered movements win? How do they build power and genuine alliances? And how do we stop reinventing the wheel? I started the interview by asking Lawrence how he got involved with activism in Ireland. So I suppose I grew up around movements which gave me a slightly different way into learning about them because um, I was watching adults do them and then kind of toddling along and helping before doing it on my own. The first thing I was involved in off my own bat was around the Falklands Malvinas War and then opposition to nuclear weapons and anti-apartheid. So that dates me for people who are old enough to know when those things are. (laughs) From that point, I was involved. I mean, wars keep on coming round, right? Unfortunately. And need for international solidarity. Uh, I got involved in ecological movements of different kinds. Ireland's a small country, so trying to make connections, moving beyond individual campaigns, individual issues, is you know, just something that we do. You know, we don't exist in silos in any case, so we know each other. So you know, easy transitions going to you know, a demo for this, occupying around that what wasn't in that space and was a real eye-opener to me was working-class community activism, uh, which Ireland has an awful lot of. It's quite rare in the global north as something, as a genuinely grassroots thing, so not as a kind of, you know, state attempt to um, subcontract the welfare state, but more like, I suppose, Latin American or black and latino us traditions of self-organizing in working class areas and encountered that from the later 90s and 
really from that point a lot of my work has been around trying to make connections because it became very evident in the Irish context individual campaigns come and go but where do they come from where do they draw on and obviously each one brings in new people but equally obviously there is a compost or whatever that helps to transmit uh, a certain sense of well what are we up to so that we're not starting from scratch every bloody time going oh if only people knew about this then surely they'd do something and uh, i'm sure if we could explain it to our local politician or the local newspaper everything will get sorted or you know here's a rich person who really wants to help so long as we can frame it in a suitably non-threatening way so that understanding actually makes the difference between wasting a huge amount of time and probably splitting three or four times as you think that through for yourself in the middle of conflict or actually starting from a basic understanding that understanding that you do actually need to build your own strength that when you're challenging powerful interests, you have to organize in certain ways that you need to avoid being tied into. We only care about this place. You know, we're fine if the same thing happens 50 miles down the road or we're only opposed to incinerators, but we're fine if we get landfill, you know, that we actually have to move beyond the immediate campaign to talk about what are the wider issues and to see how can we connect that, that it's, it exists as part of a web and that at the basis of that web is us rather than putting our centre of gravity in public opinion as defined through the media or in the official political system, in the official legal system. You know, th those are fine if we're dealing with trivial issues. But when it comes to actual difficult conflicts, there are real weaknesses. The belief that there is an easy way out that lies in terrain controlled by somebody else, terrain defined by wealth, power, cultural privilege, and so on. So, you know, all of that is kind of the background understanding that we can start from or we can painfully develop. So I guess that experience of sort of frustration with having to go through the basics over and over um, helped you form a desire to help campaigns start from a better informed place. Finding that time for listening, reflection and knowledge sharing, though, is something movements often struggle to do in organised fashion. And there's a tendency to kind of fall back on patterns or comfortable methods, regardless if they're uh, being effective. Could you broadly comment on how learning in movements typically takes place and discuss some of the examples you've been involved in that try to facilitate better processes? Uh, I'm going to say there's two different kinds of things that we learn very crudely. So there's a bunch of technical stuff that movements quite often generate more or less spontaneous trainings for like, how do you run a meeting? You know, how do you do social media? How do you do fundraising? It's not that you can't get better or worse at these, but we sort of see them as pretty obvious problems. We're going to have to deal with different levels of repression. We've got to deal with financial issues. We've got to 
put ourselves out there. They exist as sort of kind of separate bits of technical knowledge. So they're obviously technical and obviously teachable and learnable. The other kind of learning, which I think is, you know, maybe more what we're talking about is the stuff which people don't always see that they have to learn because they don't always think about it as needing learning. Um, and, you know, that that's what happens if you say, oh, well, if only people knew about this, you know, the negative effects of um, water pollution, well, then, you know, everybody will be on our side. And it's just a matter of us talking to the right people. So that's a non-learning. And the non-learning starts from not seeing that there is something to learn. How do we learn about that? Well, sometimes very painfully. If there is, let's say, an extractive industry landing in a very conservative, small place, quite often people have to go through every stage of this. You can leapfrog that. So in Ireland, we've seen in the 70s and then again in the 2010s, cases where people had had to go through that once in their own community. And then when a comparable project arrived not too far away, they were able to go there and explain to people with the credibility of visibly being people like them and having thought through it very much within those same terms. Look, this is what this means. And you might think that you'll be able to talk to your local politicians and get a friendly hearing. Let me tell you, you won't, and this is why. So this is what you have to do. That process of transmitting understanding, which we can also do cross-generationally when we have organizations that last long enough to have multiple generations, you know, because uh, with the best will in the world, between 16 and 25, we're typically not very interested in listening to what other people have to tell us, unless they're already there with some prestige and we're trying to find our way in. But if we take off and organize separately, which, you know, much in our culture encourages us to do so in sort of, you know, global North cultures, that can be a cut off towards seeing that we need to learn anything. That's, that's a very, very general answer. You can transmit that knowledge across place. You can transmit it across time. Once you've acquired some of it, you can start to transmit it. And I want to say, look, good habits, good ideology, they can transmit that stuff. The difference very often is that so many people in movements genuinely do not know whether the habits and ideology that they're transmitting actually go back to effective and relevant practice or whether they just feel good. We're not actually very good at, as human beings at seeing movement strategy as a practical task. It's something that you can actually learn about. We are very keen on going, oh, well, that sounds great. I like the sound of that without asking, what is it about me that makes me like the sound of it? So in effect, we project our identities onto the outside world. We go, that ideology sounds cool. This sounds comfortable. This sounds like it will position people like me at the center. I can see how to perform this way of being, whether or not it works. In some ways at the moment, it seems to me that is the biggest challenge. 
is how to break out of that, especially within small and largely homogenous organizations. And maybe particularly, I want to say, for people who are quite new to movements, personally, but also new to movements in their own culture. So they're not coming out of, they're not in a racialized group, which has a long inherited experience of, you know, the outer world is real, power does not belong to us, we can expect to meet trouble. They're, they're landing, you know, without that much of a sense necessarily that the rest of the world is real and practical and is something that you have to negotiate with. They haven't seen their parents, older people in their community, battling with real power forces and sometimes winning, sometimes losing, thinking and arguing about, well, what actually works around this? So that's a weakness. That's a real weakness. I don't know. I'd, there is a part of me I want to say that says this is a problem of privileged people in the global north because you run into, or I don't know if this is also true in Australia, I don't want to presume, but you definitely run into a kind of anti-intellectualism which says, I don't actually need to know anything about any stuff that happens anywhere else, except for the stuff that suits me. I'm I'm presenting a very (laughs) depressing picture at the moment, but it's by seeing the depressing picture, because you don't encounter the same thing half so much in actual mass struggles from the global south, the kinds of things that very often the same people romanticize. Uh, You know, South African shack dwellers, Kurds, Zapatistas put a lot of effort into theory and discussion and learning and movement education. They really do. And maybe it's because they don't have education handed to them on a plate, or they don't spend 20 years of their lives in a very alienating education system and come to discount the idea of knowledge. But certainly at the moment, in the global north, many of our movements are extremely weak in terms of owning their own means of communication, owning their own means of education, having their own spaces for strategic discussion. It's not something we do a lot of. We're quite parasitic on very powerful institutions that we don't own. So uh, an obvious example is social media. When we shift a lot of our strategic discussion to social media, we become prisoners of algorithms and prisoners of a kind of talking to a relatively passive audience. It's quite hard to make social media work for us in the sense of having conversations between people in movements about strategy, as opposed to be outraged about this thing that that person said. You know, there's a place for that, but it's not actually a strategic discussion. The same is true for for-profit publishing, even radical for-profit publishing. So the kind of celebrity world of famous left pundits who, again, structurally, and this, this is not necessarily the case individually or personally, but structurally that operates by converting movements into a market and by not distinguishing between actual movement practice and a sort of opinion politics where I am passively consuming the right opinions, where I've got an interest in having the right opinion on X, much more than I do in doing something effective about X. So we're parasitting on those, and we're also parasitting on academia. 
those spaces, they're very powerful, they're prestigious, they're well-resourced. Often, too, they center, I want to say, London and New York in ways that are quite unhelpful because, you know, these places are not actually great at having movements that win, but they are post-imperial centers of cultural production in a globally dominant language. So we hear a lot what is cool in London. We hear a lot what is cool in New York. That doesn't necessarily help us to say what will actually work in Dublin, what will work in Australia. So there's something there about how do we actually construct spaces where we debate among ourselves, what should we be doing? Is this working? Where we can have a relatively honest discussion about, look, there are different strategies here. There are different ways of thinking about this problem. What's involved in going down this route? What's involved in going down this route? Can we go down both routes simultaneously and stay talking to each other? Uh, or is this an absolute decision that we have to make that involves a split? That sort of debate is absolutely central if we want to exist as movements rather than simply organisations or opinions. We don't exist as a movement unless we've got a space where we can talk to each other about who we are and what we are doing, even in messy and um, contentious ways. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. There's a better world that's coming, tell you why, why, why. There's a better world that's coming, tell you why. We will beat them on the land, on the sea and in the sky. There's a better world that's coming, I'll tell you why. There's a better world that's coming, don't you see, see, see. There's a better world that's coming, don't you see. When we'll all be union and we'll all be free. There's a better world that's coming, don't you see. There's a better world that's coming, and don't you know, no, no. There's a better world that's coming, don't you know. I'm a union man in a union war, it's a union world I'm fighting for. There's a better world that's coming, don't you know. There's a better world that's coming, there's a better world that's coming, there's a better world that's coming, I'll tell you why, why, why. Don't you see, 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 and don't you know, no, no. There's a better world that's coming, tell you why, why, why. Better world that's coming, tell you why. Out of marching, out of battling, you can hear the chains are rattling. There's a better world that's coming, I'll tell you why. Now there's a better world that's coming, and there's a better world that's coming, and there's a better world that's coming, I'll tell you why, why, why. There's a better world that's coming, I'll tell you why, why, why. Better world that's coming, I'll tell you why. We'll beat them on the land, in the sea and in the sky. There's a better world that's coming, I'll tell you why. Well, 
There's a better world that's a-coming, don't you see, see, see? Better world that's a-coming, don't you see? When we'll all be union and we'll all be free, there's a better world a-coming, don't you see? There's a better world a-coming, don't you see, see, see? Better world a-coming, don't you see? When we'll all be union and we'll all be free, there's a better world that's a-coming, don't you see? You're listening to Commons Conversations, a series of interviews with campaigners sharing their experience and insights into activism, radical history and more. We just heard a song from the 1940s by Woody Guthrie entitled There's a Better World A-Coming. My name is Ian McIntyre and in today's program I'm bringing you an interview with Irish activist and researcher Lawrence Cox about the nature of learning in movements for social change. Where we rejoin the interview, Lawrence discusses examples of Irish gatherings and a master's course which successfully facilitated cross-movement and internal movement knowledge sharing. The, the easiest example to talk about is between 2001-2015 we ran a series of what we called grassroots gatherings in Ireland. These were coming together of groups that were broadly speaking bottom-up in different ways. Some of them, you know, feminist, anarchist, community-based, ecological, whatever but that had that broad sense of, okay, we don't want either a kind of old-style authoritarian left top-down or a sort of NGO charity-style approach. We're interested in this third space, but we're small, you know, there's not many of us. We got people together over a weekend, I don't know, 15 times, something like that. So a lot in the early years, in the years of the sort of big anti-capitalist movement of movements, and then a bit less as the crash came and the world changed a bit. And what we do would be, I don't know, we'd have a workshop, let's say, on direct action. We get people from three very different kinds of campaigning. One, I remember we had a traveller activist, so that's kind of Irish indigenous population, subject to a lot of physical violence moving on by the police and uh, occasionally by local thugs. We had somebody from kind of ecological direct action space. I forget who the third one was. We'd ask each of them to talk for like five minutes on the assumption that everybody else in the group is also doing this kind of thing. Right. So now we've got a sense of how do you, you know, you put nails in trees and let people know that and then they can't cut them down with chainsaws. Cool. So what, what can the rest of us take from that? Doing that a lot people started to get those bigger senses of what's the principle that comes out of this. Not not so much like the, the grand normative philosophical principle, but you know, what's involved in disruptive activity? What's involved in mass activity? What's involved in bottom-up organizing? We had at that time quite a lot going on. So we had the US military were using an Irish airport. Ireland's technically neutral, but the US uses an Irish airport for their wars in the Middle East. So that was one very obvious flashpoint. Shell were building a gas pipeline 
there was a sort of 15 year long struggle around that. So there was a series of things like that. Uh, and then we had various summit protests, the World Economic Forum, the European Union and so on. That gave us a space where we could offer each other a lot of practical solidarity, share a lot of tips, build networks, build a more general sense of, well, what are we up to here? Because yeah, if there's you know, a small number of you and everybody around you is saying that you're bad, uh, and the one thing that is reinforcing you is, yes, in America, I read about this cool thing they did in 1972. <clears throat> That's a weak position to be in. So we... We did that for a lot, and it was mostly just literally putting people together and having conversations in a space where they didn't have to make a decision immediately. So that's, a, that's at the time we had learned that from the, the social forum movement of all things. There is a difference between the space where you have to make a decision we're coming together, we're building a platform, we're building an alliance, we've got to agree on X. That creates a certain kind of pressure, which is not great for learning. So if you can separate those out for a little bit and go, here's a space which is actually mostly about discussion and debate and learning from each other and getting a bigger sense of how do people do something similar to what I'm doing, but in a different space. At the start, these things would be happening three or four times a year, and they'd be happening in different towns and cities. So what would happen would be at the end of one, people would say, well, who's going to host the next one? That town or city would then take off and do it themselves. And maybe people who'd done it before would say, look, if you need a hand, we'll help. But, you know, it's actually better if it is as organic as possible, that it's not parachuted in, that you learn this, that you do it. Maybe you do something new and interesting. Maybe you do something that's particularly appropriate to your setting. There was less need from our point of view, I think, to try and articulate something very abstract at that point. And we, particularly the, the two summit protests we had, one of them we managed to prevent the World Economic Forum altogether. That's, very, very proud of that. They, they were having these regional gatherings between ourselves and the Irish Social Forum. There might might have been 200 people. And they were going to meet in Dublin Castle, like in the centre of Dublin. It, it, you know, it is a castle. And then they cancelled it because you know, they, they literally said uh, they weren't so sure about the security. Like they couldn't defend a castle against 200 of us. <laughs> you know, and then they came out with a... <laughs> A less uh, embarrassing story quite quickly. Somebody clearly, you know, some PR person came in and said, you can't say that, you can't say that. So that and uh, an EU summit, that had very large scales of mobilisation. And then that spilled out into a growth of things like social centres and so on. Like you started to get um, that kind of broader movement culture developing. So no, where we felt that we needed to start getting theoretical or abstract or whatever was after the crash. So 2007, the, the stuff I've described is the first half of the 2000s, really, though the pipeline project kept going. That, that battle just went on and on and on. But a lot of things changed with the crash because Ireland on its own wound up taking on 42% of the extra costs across the EU. So it was an absolutely massive, massive hit, like the scale of cuts 
and regressive taxation and so on was extreme. So every movement was hit and there was a big shift. It's allowed people who loved talking about government policy, who loved keeping things on a national level and who loved marching up and down the street to say, right, this is, this is how we have to respond to this which was completely ineffective, but you know, a lot of people went, well, you know, clearly we do have to march up and down the street and complain about government policy, um, even if we are not actually building any power in doing so or managing to resist anything significantly. That certainly reshaped the picture. In 2008, I think, a bunch of people who had connections two different movements started to come together and go, well, we're going to do an activist masters. This is something that we could do, which yeah, there, there were obviously institutional logics for it. There were also a lot of people who had suddenly lost their jobs or whatever they were doing had gone belly up. But being Irish, thought education was a valuable thing or wanted a bit of time to step back and think about it. So for five years, then we ran uh, a master's program, which was doing some of this in a more theoretical way. And I want to say this is on top of existing campaigns, existing movements, but in a space where they were shifting quite a lot. This, this is a kind of initially a three day thing, then it became a two day thing. But the assumption was that it was people taking one step to the side of their movements rather than stepping out completely. That it was very much a part-time thing. It was very much for practitioners. The core of it, the sort of project component was something about your own movements practice. That was the, that was the goal that you would be doing some kind of action research on an aspect of your movements practice that you were already as an activist felt we could do this better or what's working or we have to document what's really good here. That was certainly a shift, I suppose, towards more explicit discussion of broader principles, but still very much trying to ground it in, in, in practice, you know, trying not to come at it from the point of view of great political theory in the abstract, but more, you know, what are we already doing? What do we know about past movements? Can we make connections to movements elsewhere? Because the thing is, there isn't a book somewhere that has the answers. Yeah, <laughs> there actually isn't. You know, it's a book that we write and it is a constant, our, our knowledge, movement knowledge is very fragile. It's quite situational. It's quite ephemeral. The only way it really acquires a sort of presence is by us coming together and definitely including past generations, definitely including other movements, including other spaces in our understanding. But the moment that we step onto the terrain of what Gramsci calls the traditional intellectuals. Let's think about this from the point of view of normative political philosophy. Yeah, we, we've actually, you know, given away the game at that point. These things are always fragile. And I think that is actually the place to start from is there is no point in giving away too much in the belief that we will be able to institutionalize it and that will be a gain. 
So that's true for all those things I was talking about previously. It's true for academia. It's true in for-profit publishing, which I've you know done a lot of. I've done a lot of books. But your ability to get books through capitalist production and distribution processes, even radical ones, it's constrained, it's vulnerable to processes which aren't ours. And then the same with social media and so on. So in our case, you know, we, we were all elbows, E.P. Thompson says, you know, we, we did our thing, we did it determinedly, then we were eventually forced to stop, largely because the state had cut grants to postgraduate students who were not doing narrowly vocational courses. But yeah, I mean, it's a battle. So very early on uh, around that um, Shell pipeline, uh, one of our students was arrested and their rucksack was slung in a different cop car. They were driven to the station, booked, chucked out again, given their rucksack back. Uh, And in it was a recording device from my department which had recorded these cops joking about raping and deporting protesters. She literally brought it to the other students, you know, the following Monday and said, what should I do? And, you know, people, people were very good. They said to her, look, you know, if you make this public, you will be putting yourself through the mill. She's a very brave woman. She said, okay, I'm fine with doing that because this with you know people need to hear what you know what the cops are actually like what they what they do with this and then the supposed police ombudsman wanted this device to supposedly pursue their case of course it had all her recordings with other activists on about their strategy and they were entirely dependent on the police for their technical work on the device. So she was like, under no circumstances, I've given people a guarantee of confidentiality. And obviously we backed her up, eventually you know, re- refused to hand over the device. So that, that was a long and painful process uh, with threats from the university, threats from the police ombudsman and so on and so forth. We all eventually won on that one. I'm not sure how many people were still paying attention by that point, as is often the case with these things. You know, people get the big picture. Oh, this is what the cops are like. And then it becomes more and more obscure. Fewer and fewer people are following. You kind of, you know, we won on points. But the main thing was that um, big delegitimation. That was a point where you could have gone, oh, goodness, you know, we need to comply in some way and told ourselves how it would be for the good in the long run. It wouldn't have been. You would wind up with something that really had no significant content for movements. And you would wind up convincing yourself that its existence in academia was a good thing, which I simply don't think is the case. Simply having the words in academia or in the media or whatever else it might be is not a win. It is taking space temporarily for our movements on their terms. That's a win. But you have to see that it's temporary. You have to see we are not going to be able to hold this indefinitely because academia is not our terrain. The mainstream media is not our terrain. (laughs) Celebrity is not our terrain. Ask yourself as a movement, where is our centre of gravity and organise from that and do the things that are sustainable on that basis.
xenophobic, paranoia take people Lock them up forever on some brute, lethal Fear campaign, bureaucratic mental bricks of rhetoric and blame, blame for the folks off the boat seeking freedom from strikes and human rights Why else would they be risking their life? All I know is it's outrageous, we're courageous Sons and daughters crossing waters now living in cages For ages waiting while we conversating Arguing, debating on what's a real Australian Or who's just faking or not assimilating more Who's on the roof, hunger striking to their life aboard While circle goes berserker with their pepper spray Politicking politicians wishing it would go away But the issue's the same as long as people do And held hostage by attitudes We all vote people than less indigenous group Many of them still treated like refugees on their own land Intervention Down under and underhand It ain't just here We know it's many places True. Plenty worse Serving up a racist matrix Claiming case review on an individual basis Feeding prison CEO individual pay slips As days rip To gears on the calendar Tension builds and builds Till Christmas becomes Attica So add it up we got enough space here to house a bit more action, compassion, and less tears before the overseers equating life with the lotto. Indiscriminate, indeterminate, incommunicado be the motto of the policy employed. But that ain't good enough for our future to be enjoyed. How about we take people, welcome them like we would want next sequel. Balance like the equinox. The truth is lethal for the ones who want it caged up. Placed behind barbed wire, wired up with that same old hate, evil, xenophobic, paranoia, take. So I know. 
You're listening to Commons Conversations on Community Radio 3CR. We just heard Asylum, a 2015 track from Combat Wombat. Today's program features an interview with Lawrence Cox, an Irish activist who's been involved in a range of movements for social change for more than 35 years. In his day job, he researches social movements and co-edits the activist academic movement journal Interface. Where we rejoin the interview, Lawrence discusses European projects such as ULEX and Movement Learning Catalyst, both of which are assisting activists to undertake strategic training and to consider where they and their campaigns sit within broader movement ecologies. ULEX is sort of cross-European movement training network. They have uh, a base in Catalonia, but then, you know, they deliver training as elsewhere. They do stuff online. They've got a big network of collaborators. They interface with some of the other movement training networks in Europe, which I think I would have to really go back and dig dig out the research. But I think the existence of moving tra- movement training networks in Europe of this form is a relatively recent thing. It used to be that a lot more would happen within the framework, let's say, of political parties. It's happened in the States for a lot longer. In the American model, uh, movements, movement organizations, which are very often in effect NGOs with a lot of money and with differing kinds of connection to things on the ground, bring in consultants to deliver workshops. Yeah, and there's good and bad versions of that. But, you know, it's where we are at the moment uh, in Europe, certainly, that relatively few of our movements have internal capacity for training beyond some of that very technical stuff that I talked about at the start. Movement internal strategic training uh, or organisation internal strategic training, there isn't so much of, and... The best organizations like ULEX are then movement internal, but they're not organization internal. So they are very much of the movement, for the movement. They're not for profit. Um, They're grounded in an intentional community. Um, They operate very much on a solidarity economy basis um, in relation to the people who work with them, in relation to participants. And yes, the idea is very much bringing people together across different countries and across different issues, you know, while also doing, say, specifically East Central European trainings or trainings for uh, around, say, resilience for trans activists or whatever it might be. So specific stuff. The training that I've been part of particularly is the thing called Ecology of Social Movements. The name kind of gives the idea. So it is in some ways similar to those gatherings. It's a sense that there is an ecology of movements. Rather than thinking my movement is the only one and within that movement, my kind of organization is the only significant one. So my organization, even my type of activity plays a role within a wider ecology that is the movement. And then there is a wider ecology of movements. And it's interesting, I have to say, working with people on that, 
how much of a stretch that is for people, how narrowly people, uh, a lot of people, define the movement that they're in, and how hard it is to get beyond that. And that seems to me a historical fact. This is not a criticism that for a lot of activists, that's where they're at, that they exist within, let's say, the food sovereignty movement, don't have a sense that that is really part of a wider ecology movement or the anti-authoritarian climate justice movement or whatever it might be. So obviously it is a great it is a great gain to see your organization as part of a wider movement. But equally, obviously, we're not in a great place strategically if we can't frame the movement we're in in bigger terms. And it's important to be clear about the direction of causation here. It's not because you know people are short-sighted that our movements are losing. It's more when our movements are not doing well, it's hard to see beyond the specific periods of defeat or even of relative stalemate. They're periods of particularism. They're periods of fragmentation. They're also periods where it's easier to win internal battles against one another. (laughs) So we've got to put our energy somewhere. You know, and then periods when our movements are on the rise are periods when it's easier to make alliances and when it's easier to say, well, you know, maybe you're making gains there, we're making gains here, maybe we can work together or these mutually reinforce one another or whatever. So, you know, that bigger historical understanding of how we are is important. Yeah, and what I mean, what we do um, over the course of, let's say, a one-week residential or a two-week residential for ecology of social movements is certainly there is content, but a lot of it is about creating space for people to encounter one another and to reflect on their own practice. So those are the two key things is, firstly, whatever you do, it's got to come back eventually to people's practice and to their awareness of the discontents of their practice. So that you're not in a space of trying to sell the way you do things. You're aware of, you know, there's a reason why you're doing the thing you're doing. There's a reason why you're doing it that way. But also the fact that we are in movement, we are in a movement because we are not yet strong enough and effective enough to have actually won. That's why we're in a movement. We're trying to move somewhere. So we've got an awareness of discontent. That's what brings us to a training like that. And one really effective outcome then has to be a space to reflect on that, a space where you are not in the immediate firefighting moment of just dealing with crises and just going, okay, look, this is how we do things. We to deal with this crisis, we've got to do more of that. You can step back and go, is the thing we're doing actually achieving what we set it up to do? Which then, you know, not only through this, but as a more general principle, if you can ask yourself that question, then you have a way of changing your organization or movement so you don't have to vote with your feet. You're not fetishizing a very particular tactic, as we often do, This organization is defined by we do this one thing or a very particular mode of internal organizing. You're able to actually learn collectively rather than individually. As an organization, you're able to say, well, 
we've been doing this thing in this way with this perspective and either we need to change or we need to diversify rather than people just leaving as it becomes unworkable. That, that obviously is a really powerful reason for learning is not to waste those, that collectivity, not to waste those resources. The other thing which I think is even more important is over the course of a two-week residential particularly, which goes pretty deep, or over the course of a year in a master's, you have to encounter people who are substantially different to you. And that's quite significant. So if you're coming from a sort of white middle-class environmental background, and, and you go to just like a weekend event, let's say, or even a day event, it's easiest to hang out with the people who are like you, who are going to reinforce your sense of you. You're going to come away with a buzz. Those are the easy allies. Those are the people you could probably reach out to anyway, because you have the same language and you've got a broadly similar understanding. You're not likely to really get very far with people who are substantially different to you in their movement culture in how they organize, in the social worlds they are embedded within. When you spend a long time with each other, that shifts because you come to have a much more 3D experience of that person and you start to get a much better sense of, well, what is the world behind the words? What's their social world like? that they're speaking from, maybe a working class community? What's the practice that they're speaking from? So when they say this word, what does it mean? And that's obviously the opposite to the social media context, where we react to the words because the words mean X. Now, some of that's a particularly middle-class problem. It's a problem exacerbated by education, exacerbated by construction of movements around the consumption of cultural artifacts social media, books or whatever, this word is a good word, this word is a bad word, as opposed to going, well, when this person says this, what do they mean? What are they talking about? How do they even talk? How do they use language? That more in-depth encounter with the person and the ability to kind try and see their movement practice and the world within which their movement happens. That's really important because those are the difficult allies. Those are the people who don't work according to the same time schedules, who don't necessarily operate on the same communication circuits, who we can't simply phone up and say, oh, you know, we need you to come and help. You know, we've got to invest time in relationship building. So that that, I think, is really, really important because that is how we reconstruct a movement of movements which is genuinely interested in difference and is capable of becoming, you know, whatever you want to call it, counter-hegemonic or whatever, producing an alternative common sense because it is not restricted to people who use a certain kind of language and live in a particular life world. It's capable of bridging those. People in Ulex and some of us who had been in this activist masters and a couple of other cross-European training organizations. So the European Community Organizing Network and a thing called European Alternatives came together and said, okay, we would actually like to scale it up and go deeper. You know, we think the things that we're doing, they're great, but 
They have an effect, but it's limited. Can we have more of a strategic impact with larger numbers over a longer period of time and connecting up our different networks, which are inevitably partial networks? You know, we each of us are in touch with certain kinds of movement experiences, certain kinds of networks. So can we put those together and then even include more, hopefully? So we have just we're just getting to the point of having maybe 60 participants for a pilot year and that will be mostly online with some residential elements and the assumption it is of course part-time and people will find very different ways through it like it's not that everybody is going to be doing the same thing we might wind up needing to have different language groups because obviously you know, Europe is insanely linguistically diverse in in the languages that people organize in, even though English has become this very dominant thing floating above that, people organize in their local languages. And, you know, maybe all sorts of other diversification within that. So we're doing that for a year with necessarily experienced activists from very wide range of movements, kinds of organizing very different strategies represented, but all serious about genuine transformation. You know, so it's not about simply fitting into the way things are, whether it's you know more disruptive, uh, more outsider, um, more slightly NGO-y but radical approaches. So we're very excited. We're about to start in the new year. Um, and as I say, it's a pilot. So we're going to make all the material available open access. Hopefully other people will use it. But the idea is also that after this first year, we can hopefully scale it up more. So 60 people is what we think we can handle at the moment. <laughs> um, but, you know, my goal certainly would be that we're bringing together in the end you know, a few hundred people a year that, you know, we can have the kind of impact that, say, something like the Highlander Center in the US used to have. You know, it still exists, but there was a point where it was really managing to make those connections across movements and across space. Because I, th I think we need that. We need, you know, I was talking earlier about how much we need a sense of we within the movement that we've got a space within our own movement that we can talk to each other and we've got an expansive sense of that movement but we actually need it across movements we are up against obviously global heating we're up against a far right that's on the rise you know both of those things are manifestations of crisis we're up against a rise in violence and aggression targeting people on the basis of their sexuality, of being trans, of skin colour and ethnicity, all of these things, that rise in violence is also connected. And we're not doing very well. <laughs> things aren't going great. I, I don't want to be too depressing about it, but we could do better, let's say. Part of that has to be working together. We are not going to win in isolation because we aren't winning in isolation despite the efforts that our different movements put into it so we actually have to make quite deep alliances 
You know, we have to understand other people's struggles as connected with ours and our struggle as connected with other people's, not simply verbally, but uh, in a way that we can, you know, whatever that means in 2022, because we've been through so many iterations of Movement Alliance and they have had effects. You know, so we've got to work out again, well, you know, what can we do that will stop the far right? What can we do that is capable of really shifting the economic and you know, ecological extractive model? What can we do that is really capable of defending vulnerable individuals and communities and so on? What can we do that is really capable of turning back the tide of inequality? You know, not simply within a single industry or even through strike waves for employees alone, but across the range of people who are you know, dependent on the welfare state in so many ways. You've been listening to an interview with Irish activist and researcher Lawrence Cox. Today's edition of Commons Conversations was broadcast on Community Radio 3CR and produced by the Commons Social Change Library, a website containing over 1,000 resources for campaigners which can be accessed for free via commonslibrary.org. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth, and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning. Well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.